we're finding ourselves here in Romans 8, 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31 to 39. And honestly, to all of our moms out there, this is the best passage in all of Romans, okay? Maybe even the best passage in all of the New Testament, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. We're coming to the end of chapter 8, 31 to 39. Um, After this, we're hitting kind of a new section of Romans 9 through 11. But Romans 8 has been about the Christian life. Um, Really, particularly the spirit-filled Christian life. That we live a victorious life in Christ because God has placed his Holy Spirit within us and gives us that assurance, that confidence that we are his. Well, that sort of climaxes. The conclusion of that is right here, 831 to 39. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We read this, it'll be on the screen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who, will, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going, verses 31 to 34. There is no charge or condemnation that will separate us from the love of Christ. 35 to 36, there's no trial or hardship that will separate us from the love of Christ. And 37 to 39, there is no force or power that would separate us from the love of Christ. So looking first at 31 to 39, look, we read, what then shall we say to these things? What does the these things refer to? What he had just said previously, for those who were here last week, the assurance that we have that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he works out his perfect plan from foreknowledge to predestination to calling uh, to justification and ultimately to glorification. All that being the case, what then shall we say to these things? And ultimately his answer is, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is on our side, really we're on his side, right? But if God is on our side, What does it even matter who's against us at that point? Uh, Who could stand up to God if we belong to him? And particularly, verse 32, he says, God demonstrates this great uh, sort of connection to us in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. 
What is more dear to God than Jesus? Nothing in all that exists, right? The eternal son of God, and yet God was willing to give him up. Of course, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us. It's the love of Christ as well as the love of God. But he was willing to endure the cross, forsakenness and rejected, being, being rejected for us. And if God is willing to not even spare his own son and give him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? You think God is going to give you that incredible blessing and then withhold little blessings <laughs> that, are not, that are good for us? No, if God is for us, who would be against us? 33, who will bring any charge, any complaint, any guilt against God's elect, meaning his chosen ones? It's a common reference to the people of Israel as his elect, his chosen people. Now it's extended to all those who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile. It is God who justifies. We talked about that justification is a legal term. It means to declare righteous, not to become righteous in practice. That does happen over time. We begin to grow in righteousness. But justification is a legal term, and it's clear right here. Who would bring a charge against God's elect if he declares them not guilty? If he declares them innocent? Who is to condemn? And he mentions Christ is the one who died for us. More than that, he rose from the dead as we celebrated at Easter. And now, where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as the one who paid the penalty for our sin. There is no one, nothing in all of creation, nothing that exists that could bring a charge against God's people that would stand. Uh, He is the highest court that there is, right? It's not just the highest court in the land, right? He is the Scotus of all Scotuses, right? He's the, he's the supreme court of the universe and of all universes that could ever be. There is no charge, there is no guilt, there is no accusation that would stand if God himself has declared us innocent. Now that doesn't mean that certain things do try to declare us guilty. Um, there are certain things that try to bring charges against God's people, They just don't stand. Let's just think of some of those things that try to bring charges against us. Maybe it's a a worldly court. Maybe it's the the sort of uh, the world itself brings a charge against God's people. Maybe being accused of something that you didn't actually do. And maybe in this world, you're found guilty of something you didn't actually do. Our, our, Our temporary justice in this world is not perfect. Oftentimes it gets it wrong. We think of Christians around the world who are accused of falsely as a way of imprisoning or even killing them. Maybe you are guilty of a crime in this world and have been found guilty in a court of law, but you have found forgiveness and grace and mercy in the sight of God. It doesn't mean there won't be some earthly consequences for your action. We see that all throughout. God has established the state. If you're guilty, if you are caught speeding, you know, going 80 miles an hour in a 55 and you get pulled over, you can say, God, please forgive me. That was a foolish thing to do. And in the mercy of God, he will forgive you and you'll still be paying a fine, right? Because there are earthly consequences and that's true also of relationships. When we sin against one another, we hurt each other. And those relationships don't immediately spring back because we become a Christian. But the highest court and the most important standing is the one before God. And when we find grace and forgiveness before him, we then seek to reconcile with our brothers and sisters, with those whom we've harmed. 
It's not just the worldly court, though. Satan himself would seek to bring a charge against God's people. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the term Satan, Hasatan in Hebrew, literally means the accuser. He's the one who accuses God's people. That's what he did right in the very beginning. He led God's people into, uh, into sin in the Garden of Eden and all throughout. He's the accuser. We see him coming into the presence of God in the book of Job, for example, pointing at Job, saying he's not really righteous, he doesn't really love you. All throughout, we see him reminding us of our guilt, the fact that we are not good enough for God, that our sin has separated from us, us from him, and there is no way to find forgiveness, redemption, forgive, uh, salvation. I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther wrote this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Satan can't hold any charge against God when he is the highest court. And if he declares us innocent, there is no guilt that will stick. But beyond that, it's ourselves. Maybe it's your own past. Maybe it's feelings of guilt. Feelings of shame. An unwillingness to let go of, in your own mind, in your own memory of the things you've done in the past. How do we get free of that? We meditate we pray, we consider the fact that in Christ we are forgiven. You know, there's a phrase, a little pet peeve of mine that I, people use that I don't like. You need to forgive yourself. Uh, I don't like that phrase. You know why? Because you're the perpetrator. <laughs> I'm the perpetrator of, when it comes to sin. I'm not the receiver. When I receive someone else's sin against me, but when it comes to my sin, I can't forgive myself. I'm the one who's guilty of it. But what I can do is find forgiveness and mercy from God. And when I consider the fact that he no longer holds this sin against me, and he's the ultimate authority, the more I meditate and consider that, the more I find myself free from guilt and shame. It's kind of like, it's kind of like double jeopardy, right? And I'm not talking about the game show. Uh, you know, in the legal system, double jeopardy is a big no-no. If you've been charged with the crime, and that crime has been paid for, you cannot be charged for the same crime a second time. It's as if you owed an enormous amount of debt. Christ has paid the penalty of that debt in your place. If you keep going back to the court to pay it, they're going to tell you the same thing over and over again. You don't owe us anything anymore, right? The debt has been paid. Somebody already paid it off for you. The fine no longer exists. And the more we think about Christ and realize that we are forgiven, the more we find freedom in him. And of course, the world will accuse us. The world may, uh, the, whole, the court of public opinion, and we live in what's sometimes called cancel culture. You make one mistake, and that's it. It's over for you. There's no grace, there's no forgiveness going forward. There are people who are sort of ostracized, seen as outsiders because of their sins. But go and look to Christ and find grace, mercy, and forgiveness in him. That's where our salvation comes. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, who will bring any charge or any condemnation against his people? But then he comes to, really, the climax of his set of questions. 
Uh, I think it's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this as a, a set of steps, and this is the final and top step, right? It's been described as the summa summarum, the highest of highest of all uh, when it comes to uh, these set of questions. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is nothing and no one, anywhere and everywhere, would be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And he gives a list of sort of trials or hardships that we might face as Christians. Would these things be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Would we be able to be no longer belonging to God because of these things? And he mentions tribulation or distress. These are sort of broad terms of suffering and trials that we go through. Persecution, so now someone else specifically attacking or harming or insulting or trying to destroy you as a Christian. Or famine or nakedness. Nakedness is probably an exposure to the elements, so natural disasters, things of this world. Danger or sword, somebody actually taking your life. Will that be able to separate you from the love of Christ? He says in verse 36, quoting from Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not even death would separate us from Christ. In fact, friends, when we die, what happens? We're actually transitioned, (laughs) right? And actually, it's better to die and go be with Christ than it is to stay here. What did uh, Paul himself say? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's something actually better than this world. Randy Alcorn, who wrote the book Heaven, said this, Just as birth was our ticket to this world, so death is our ticket to the next. It is less of an end than a beginning. If I told you I would move you from the slums to a beautiful country estate, you would not focus on the life you were ending, but the life you were beginning. For his sake, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. In fact, friends, around the world, 90,000 Christians die of persecutions every year. That comes to about 250 a day. And none of that separates them from the love of Christ. I want you to notice something about this, though. He doesn't say, because God loves you, you won't face tribulation, distress, and famine, and nakedness, and danger, and sword. Uh, that's sort of what the prosperity gospel teaches, right? So we find the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, uh, TBN, and stations like that. You'll find, hey, as long as you have enough faith, you will be healthy. And as long as you have enough faith, you will be successful in life. Everything will go well for you. Nothing in the Bible tells us that. In fact, we have plenty of evidence in the scripture that the opposite is true. The more faithful you are, probably the more persecution and the more opposition you'll face in this life. And of course, the way that sort of view of the prosperity gospel gets particularly ugly is if you are not successful, they say that must be some sin. You're lacking in faith. You don't trust God enough. That's why you're unhealthy. That's why you're sick. That's why you got cancer. That's why your job isn't going well because of something you've done. How foolish, friends. The promise here is that God loves us in the midst of tribulation, hardship, and suffering. In fact, God's people have always said throughout the ages, God is using that very suffering to sanctify us and prepare us for eternity. Right? Charles Spurgeon said this, the best of God's saints must drink the wormwood. The dearest of his children must bear the cross. No Christian has enjoyed perpetual prosperity. No believer can always keep his heart from the willows. 
the day of evil reveals to us the value of glorious hope. God uses tribulation and hardship to put our hope where it belongs, to put our hope in him. He sanctifies us in the midst of it. In fact, we come to this last section, there's no force and no power. It's not just trial and hardship, there is no force or power that can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors. Uh, what it's literally saying is super conquerors, right? We're more than victors. We're above victors through him who loved us. If God loves us, no matter what, he will protect us. He will see us through it. 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, no matter what we face in this world, I like what the great uh, Count Zinzendorf of the Moravian said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> That's my goal in life. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. At least by this world, not in the eyes, in the mind, in the heart of God. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. Almost certainly rulers here is a reference to demonic forces. Even spiritual beings will not be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Nor things present, nor things to come. Even the future won't separate us from the love of Christ. Going back to last week's passage, if God knew us before we, were even, we even existed, he called us and he promises us the glorification to come, then even the future is not a threat to the people of God. Nor powers broadly, nor height, nor depth. I think now he's just speaking about all of the universe, all that could exist. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. By the way, God the Father loves us. If you have this sort of picture in your mind of God the Father is angry with us and he needs a gentle Jesus to calm him down, you've misunderstood the Trinity. God's love for us is what sent Jesus into our world to save us and redeem us. Friends, what he's talking about here is the idea of what's sometimes called eternal security. Eternal security. Um, for those who have been Christians for a while, I'm going to make a plea with you as well. Um, please stop using the term once saved, always saved. Terrible term, all right? Bad, bad term. It's entirely misleading. There is no promise in the Bible that if I say a prayer at one point in time when I'm 12 years old and walk down the aisle and then live the rest of my life as a non-believer, that I'm somehow going to heaven. That is a false assumption. In fact, it's a dangerous assumption. The Bible does call us to an assurance as Christians, but there's also the danger of a false assurance. Many will say to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these miraculous things in your name? And what's Jesus' answer? I never knew you. I've had no relationship with you, ever. There's a false assurance that's dangerous. Really, the idea of eternal security is that those who truly belong to him should live with an assurance and live with the confidence of knowing that we're his and nothing will separate us from him. It's the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of God's people. He will protect us. You know, the Bible is filled with warnings all over the place to continue, to persevere, to be faithful. He who is faithful to the end will be rewarded, right? Well, that's one of the ways in which God protects us is to give us those warnings. Spurgeon put it this way, if you have a little kid who's nearing the edge of a cliff, you'll say to that kid, don't go near the edge. <laughs> How are you going to make sure he doesn't go over the edge? Well, one way is to tell him, don't go near the edge. Now, if your kid gets too close to the edge, you're going to grab him <laughs> before he goes over. 
But part of the way you warn him is by, part of the way you protect him is by warning him. The Bible gives us continual warnings to persevere, to stay faithful. But the truth of the matter is, for those who genuinely know him, those who really belong to him, nothing will separate us. Why? Because God is the ultimate authority. And if we belong to him, we'll belong to him forever. You cannot be born again and then unborn again, right? <laughs> you cannot be saved and unsaved. In fact, salvation is oftentimes described as a future event. When you turn to Christ and find grace and forgiveness in him, the Bible says you will be saved. And if it's a future event, it hasn't yet occurred, you can't will be saved and then not will be saved, right? You either are or you aren't. And those who belong to God, he will never forsake. Friends, I remember I was sitting in a Bible study one time, and one person in the study said, did you ever think about, Pastor Rick, who made God? And uh, he said, he must be really one amazing being. And I said, um... (laughs) If something or someone made God, he would be God, right? So, because who made the one who made God then, right? We just keep going back. God is the unmoved mover, the first cause, the non-contingent being, the creator of everything. In other words, there is no force or power greater than God. And if there is no force or power greater than God, there is nothing above God that has the power to separate his people from him. And anything beneath God, lesser than God, would not be able to take us from God because God himself promises that he would keep us. God is the author. He wrote the story. And for those who like sort of science fiction or fantasy, uh, who would win? Sauron or Tolkien, right? You'd say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Tolkien wrote the book. Exactly. Who would, okay, I'll choose a different. Uh, who would win, Darth Vader or George Lucas, right? You say, wait a minute, wait, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Who would, okay, I'll go back a little bit here for you, uh, you Star Trek, original Star Trek. Who would win, the, the Klingon Empire or Gene Roddenberry? Who do you think would win that fight, right? It's a nonsensical question. One is the very author of the story. He could write the Klingons out of the story if he wanted to and wipe them out entirely. He gets to decide if God is for us. Who could be against us? He loves us. We belong to him. He loves us so much that no charge and no condemnation would take us from him. No trial and no hardship. No force and no power. He loves us even more than a mom loves her children. In the Des Moines Register a few years back, people wrote about their moms and things that they did to sort of, uh, their moms did that they remember. One lady, Donna Devereaux Copeland, wrote this. On my first day of kindergarten, she gave me her wedding ring to keep in my sock as a reassurance that I would be all right and that she would return for me. Romans 8 says God has given us his seal, his covenant seal with his bride, the church, his people. He's given his very spirit to dwell in us, giving us the confidence and the assurance that we are his and his forever. As my wife said in the prayer, I know that all of us have had different types of moms, Um, Maybe some have struggled with their relationship with their mom. 
Maybe your relationship with your mom was not inseparable. Maybe you had a mom that did give you up. Maybe you had a, a conflict that broke that relationship. Maybe your mom was an amazing mom, but she passed away, and you're feeling the weight of that separation. But God is a loving, hearing God who will protect us and will never be separated from us for all eternity. You might say, Pastor Rick, are you making too much of this mother imagery here for God? Now, God is Father. God, nowhere in the Bible is God called our mother, for sure. But the Bible is not afraid of using mother language to describe God. In fact, Hosea 13.8, we see here the God is literally the mother bear. <laughs> I will fall upon them, meaning those who oppose Israel, like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, and as a wild beast would rip them open. God is literally mama bear, (laughs) protecting his people. Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. I heard someone mention it over here, Matthew 23, even Jesus uses mother-like language to describe his love for his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The psalmist in his prayer, 131, Psalm 131, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. In that inseparable nature of motherhood, that sometimes gets separated in this world. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your undying, perfect love for us as your people. Lord, we're sinners. We've broken your law. We've broken your commands. We can't claim our own righteousness. We can't claim our own salvation. We can't even claim that we fixed the past and somehow found a way to climb back up to God. We can't claim a set of ceremonies or rituals or sacraments that would somehow earn your favor back. But you did what we could not do. You sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died our death, who paid the penalty for our sin. And in doing so, Lord, you made us yours forever. Thank you, Lord, that nothing, not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor angels, nor demons, not tribulation, or sword, or famine, or nakedness, nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.